And the thing that I've always said is so great about seasonal work, especially if you can find a job that's going to give you housing and food. Like I said, my first job, I, I didn't pay for anything. I didn't pay for anything. So if you can get there, you can do it. You just have to have enough cash. You just have to have enough, you know, self push to, to get there. And usually it's set. You work, you show up, you have fun, you do your job the best you can, and um, it's going to work out for you. But a lot of people just can't get over the fear to just get there. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. here with Chloe Mites. I've <laughs> been trying to piss her off all morning, so here we go. Root and snorting Chloe Mites, ready to go. Chloe, you're from Long Island. Yes, Long Island, New York. So you're a snooty, upper-middle-class girl. Naturally. And somehow you've made your way into being known as this harder-than-nails, cow-punching, <laughs> Or horse punching, tourist roping, badass on the trail. <laughs> How'd that happen? Oh, boy. Um, it's really cool to hear myself described that way, I guess. Don't worry. I don't say anything like that on <laughs> your back. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so I grew up on Long Island. Um, my family was like from the Midwest. Um, so I don't know how snooty we were really were. But um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just always had this drive inside of me to want to leave and to go do, I don't know, the only thing in my head ever was farm work. That's all I knew. I wanted to do like farm work. Um, Why? I don't know. That was just, it was like this heartbeat in my soul. I just I knew. I grew up on a farm. We could just have traded. <laughs> that, well, that's all I knew how to call it. I just knew I wanted to do something outdoors, something physical. You wanted to get dirty. Yeah, I wanted to get dirty. Well, yeah, do something fun. I guess it seemed fun. Um, so I did what I guess what I was supposed to do or what I thought I was supposed to do and what I guess I was being pressured to do. Um, and that's not saying I regretted it, but, you know, I've, so I, I went through college. I finished it. Um, which college? I went to Stony Brook University out in Long Island, which is a medical school, which I went to because I thought I was going to be a veterinarian, a large animal vet. Um, actually, the story behind me trying to be a large animal vet is I wanted to work with horses, um, train them or just work them in general. And my mother decided that that was not a very sustainable thing to do um, and probably wouldn't be good financially. So she more or less talked me, maybe pressured me into wanting to be a veterinarian um, cause I guess that was her version of a sustainable version of farm work. So that was the idea. And then after the first year, I just, 
it wasn't working out. I still, I still didn't want to do that. Veterinary wasn't anything near really what I wanted to do. So somehow in college, I fell into journalism um, and graduated with a journalism degree. And then I was still trying to be a good citizen and have a nine to five job and live on Long Island. <coughs> so I got a job working for the local newspaper, which is actually a pretty big newspaper out there. Um, Newsday, it's like the fourth in New York or something like that. And I had a lot of fun. Um, I was a crime reporter and a breaking news reporter, which means I saw a lot of blood and plane crashes and things like that. So it was fun. I got to be out of the office all the time, tracking down bad guys and this and that. Um, so you went from horse blood and the first half of college to human blood yes. <laughs> right out of college. Human blood smeared everywhere. Um, so it was, it was a really fun version of, you know, the steady job ideal. Um, but it still wasn't enough. After about one year of doing that, I just still had this like throb in my soul that I needed to get out and do something else. Um, so I talked to, actually I talked to a lot of my older coworkers, reporters who'd been doing it forever. And I just kind of said to them like, listen, this is how I feel. I want to give this ranch thing a try, but it seems stupid. If you were in my shoes, what would you do? And they all said like, if I could go back and do something else for a little while and give it a try, I would. So I sort of took that as the go ahead and um, applied to ranches all over the country. Uh, I think the first time I applied to, I think I literally applied to 15 ranches and like two of them got back to me, but that was my start. It was how I got thrust into the seasonal lifestyle. I just had this impetus to go. How'd you find the 15 ranches? Um, I figured that they had to get job applicants somewhere. So I just looked online. I just Googled, I Googled ranches and reached out directly to them. And then I also Googled, you know, um, there's this website, coolworks.com and there's ranchwork.com, which are kind of like monster.com for interesting jobs. Um, so I, I found those and I used those and that's how I found all those ranches. I was just imagining you Google ranches, which ones would come up. Yeah, yeah. Hidden Valley, Paul Newman's Ranch. <laughs> no, it was like dude, you know, I knew what they were called. I looked up dude ranches or I looked up like horse tours and things like that. And then whatever companies were doing those, those tours, um, I just reached out to them via their email address or phone number. And um, I don't know, kind of let them guide me into how I was supposed to apply. Yeah. And so which one did you get on? Uh, the ranch I ended up with is uh, Colorado Trails Ranch, which is down in Durango, Colorado. Um, it's a dude ranch. It's kind of, I guess it's kind of a high-end family vacation spot. But it was fun. It was my first introduction to um, the other side of the horse world. I'd sort of grown up with the English side. You know, everything has to be perfect, and you're doing these little shows and this and that, and not really doing anything productive whatsoever with a horse, just having... I don't know, competitions. Um, and then I kind of got thrust into this other side that while it still wasn't quite a working ranch, um, you're doing more work with the horse instead of just, I don't know, just like going in circles on it. Um, so it was a very addictive uh, version of what I was already used to. 
What What do you mean the English side? Um, so there's two main types of horseback riding. There's English and Western. And English is the little small saddle where you usually see them doing like jumping competitions in the Olympics or dressage or cross country. Um, and that's, I guess, anything that you can think of horses in the Olympics is pretty much what English riding is. And then Western is all the cowboy stuff, the big saddles, roping cows and fixing fences and, you know, all the rodeo stuff is Western. Having shootouts. Yes, of course. Shootouts. That's a competition. You can have a shootout competition on a horse. Yes. (laughs) Mounted shooting, I think it's called. You shoot balloons. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So how much were you making at the, uh, at Newsday? Oh, um, so it was just a starter position. I hadn't even really worked up to like my real salary. I think I was doing, oh shoot. It might've been, it might've been 1500 a month, which isn't a crazy amount. Especially in New York. Especially in New York. Yeah. It was kind of like my pay grade was kind of at internship status because I, you have to really work up the ranks at those places. And I obviously didn't put in enough time to work up the ranks. And so when you went to the ranch in Colorado, how much were you making? So at the ranch in Colorado, they had me on an hourly wage. Um, So I was getting, I think I was getting like $9.50 an hour. And I would do about anywhere 10 to 12 hours a day. Um, But then you also made tips and my housing was included, and they fed me three pretty great meals a day. Um, so in my eyes, I was winning. All combined, you were making way more than yeah. fifteen hundred a month. Yep, and so getting it was to do something a huge super fun. pay upgrade, and you were doing what you thought at the time you wanted to do. Exactly. Yeah. And so, how how did it go at the in Durango? It went well. It went well. Um, so I was I was hired for a season. That season was I think it was May till early September. Sorry, this is four years ago, so I'm trying to remember everything. Um, May to early September. Um, there were about twenty six staff members, and they weren't all cowboys. You know, they were housekeepers and cooks and um, maintenance guys. I mean, it was just everything you needed to run that dude ranch. And they were all about the same age as I was. And um, we lived together. We ate together. We became a little family on the ranch. Um, it, was, it was good times. I learned a lot and I met a lot of new people, had a lot of friends. Um, and uh, when it came to the end of the season, initially when I went out there, I thought I was going to just go home at the end and like, that. okay, that was my adventure back to the grind. Um, But when it came to the end, I found out that I really didn't want to. I was really dreading going home and doing that all over again. Um, And I was hearing other people talk about how they were just going to do some other thing next season during the winter. They were going to go here, go there, try some other job that was similar to this ranch job. Um, And I figured I could do it myself, too. So I started looking at that and kept going down that road a bit. What was... What were some possibilities for you that next season? So being new to the seasonal world, I didn't understand the width and breadth of it. 
So I figured the only things I really understood about winter jobs, outdoor winter jobs, is I figured I'd have to work at a ski mountain and I thought I would have to like run a ski lift. And I do not know how to ski. I don't like the snow. I don't like winter. Uh, So sitting outdoors, running a ski lift just seemed really terrible to me. Um, So I tried to think of other things people do on winter vacations. Um, And one of the big things that came to mind was I know people go, they try dog mushing. They try to go on these tours and just give it a go. It's like a day trip that you can do on your vacation. Well, they need someone to run those dog sleds. So that's a job you can have. So I did the same thing I did at the ranch. I got online and I just looked up every dog sledding tour company that I could find. And I think I applied to about five of them. There were a couple in Minnesota, Wyoming. I even applied, I think, in... Oh, I I applied in Alaska, too. Yeah, I applied everywhere I could find one. And two of them got back to me (laughs) again. One in Minnesota and one in Jackson, Wyoming. And I figured the Jackson, Wyoming one would be slightly warmer. So I went there. Um, I was wrong about the warmth. (laughs) It's one of, I think it's one of the coldest places in the U.S. where we were, but it was, uh, I learned a lot. See, you were Googling mushing. You should have been Googling, (laughs) you know, average temperatures. Yeah, I learned that lesson the hard way. (laughs) And the idea to maybe run uh, like sail catamarans in Key West never crossed your mind? No, it didn't. It didn't. <laughs> I know. I, I, I'm really sad about it now. I guess I should have tried to find some kind of summary thing to do, but I guess I was just stuck in the idea that it's winter. Okay, there's going to be snow. Let's find a snow thing. Right. And I found the best snow thing that I could. Yeah. One of the best things about seasonal life is you never have to see snow. Or if you like <laughs> snow, you can always be where there's winter. Oh, now you're and just f- rubbing it in. For you, someone that I've seen... <laughs> So many times complain about the cold, I would think. (laughs) (laughs) So you you went and worked in uh, Wyoming, dog mushing. And what were you making there? There, I think my salary was approximately $1,200 a month. Um, And then you made tips on top of that as well. We got pretty cheap housing. There was this nice little cabin that you would share with one other person that you rented for $100 a month. It was nominal. Um, And then I think two meals a day we got there. We had to feed ourselves breakfast. So still doing better than the paper than I was at, you know, my starter position at the paper. And Um, you're doing something new. Something new. Learning a new skill. You're around dogs all day. I'm not going to go so far to say that it was fun, but (laughs) (laughs) it was new. Um, Yeah. And once again, living with great people, doing, you know, making a family out of people I never knew before, wouldn't have met otherwise, becoming very close knit. And that was one of those jobs where we, I can honestly say we face life and death at least once a week, if not every day, we face it once a week. Um, And you had to have a good connection with those people. And even if they weren't your friends, there's just a level that you're going to save someone that you know if you see that they're in danger. Um, I know at that job, it's I think it's where I met one of my first seasonal enemies, <laughs> which is not something we talk about very often in the seasonal community, but... Um, I do. I think... I got plenty of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've got a few here and there scattered across the country. Um but there was this this fellow that I lived with who just, we rubbed each other the wrong way. Maybe, 
I think it, maybe it started as a joke and just grew into this very hateful relationship. Um, but despite how we felt about each other, um, we were what we called yard partners. So that meant that it was my responsibility to help him with his dogs and his responsibility to help me with my dogs. Um, so, you know, if he was, I wouldn't say he was sick, if it was like his day off or something, I'd help feed his dogs and take care of them. Same with me. And uh, there was a couple times on the trail where a dog fight would erupt. And these dog fights aren't just spats. I mean, these dogs are trying to kill each other. That's just what they do. Um, And, you know, despite how we felt about each other, I would run as fast as I could through the snow to help him and his dogs. Or I know several times I was like going down under dogs and I could see him running over to help me. And um, we wouldn't there wasn't a lot to be said between the two of us. It'd just be a nod and like, thanks. All right, carry on. But, um, it's just funny, the sort of relationships you end up building in those situations. What was a normal day in the dog mushing world? Um, so we would, I'd wake up at about six o'clock and start putting all my layers on. Um, you kind of got a system down for dressing where you sort of, when it's that cold, you're just kind of picking items that work and wearing them until they smell so bad you can't wear them anymore, and then you switch to a new set of items. So you put your items on that you've chosen for the week or whatever. I'd cook up a little breakfast, um, usually just like two slices of bacon and an egg, Uh, put on all my boots and everything, head up, be there by 7 o'clock, get ready to start feeding the dogs. Um, So the night before, we would have thawed out two huge chunks of meat. We have about 20 dogs each. So you'd get two, excuse me, two huge chunks of meat and mix it with kibble and water and whatever is working for your individual dogs. And then you got these two huge buckets and you're going out into the snow and plowing through the snow and going up and down your line, putting a little ladle in each cup until all your dogs are fed. And of course you got to like scoop poop. So you go out with a little shovel and a bucket and you're scooping all the poop in your yard. Um, And uh, once all those chores are finished, um, you're preparing for tours. So maybe you go in and grab a snack or something. I always had second breakfast. It was always like a granola bar or a banana (laughs) or something like that. Um, You pull out your sleds. You set them up. You get your dogs ready. The tourists start to come. um, And then it's just tour from there. You know, you get your guests. You introduce them. You head out into the trail. And it was about a four-hour trail out to some hot springs where they would relax where, how do you get them on the actual sled, though? Um, so the sleds were anchored out or tied to posts in the yard, and all the dogs would be attached to the sled. And the reason you have to anchor them is because the dogs are so anxious to go. They're just these motors that are constantly on and almost never off. So they're always pulling, pulling, pulling. So if that sled isn't literally tied off to something or anchored down, they're just going to leave without you. So you got the e-brake <laughs> on the whole time. Yep. The e-brake on, tied up. So you would keep that e-brake on and position your guests on the sled, either in the, in the bag in the front where they can sit or standing on the runners in the back with me. And then once everything's done and, um, the instructions have been given, I just tell them to hold on real tight, you know, cause they never expect how fast that sled's going to take off. Hold on real tight and you pull the line and you're off like a rocket. Just zooming down the trail. How fast do they go? Um, racing sleds. Oh, I'm going to quote this wrong. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
I want to say racing sleds can hold like 15 miles an hour over quite some distance. Um, we were what you would call freight sleds, of course, because tourists aren't in the best of shape all the time. And we were packing multiple, multiple people on a sled. So it was quite a heavy weight. We'd be pulling maybe 400 pounds. Um, we would probably keep up somewhere between five on a normal day. And if the snow was really fast, maybe reach 10. How do you stop this rocket ship? <laughs> um, there is a brake on the sled. All, all the brakes on the sled are um, hooks that dive into the snow and basically just create fric- friction until the dogs really can't pull you or the snow so packed up that they can't pull through it. So there's a little foot brake that consists of two hooks. And, you know, you're just using that on and off to kind of make it slower or completely stop it. And then there's this thing called a snow hook, which is, um, it looks like snake teeth. They're like two hooks that just look like a snake's jaw. And this is sort of your heavy duty brake that you can throw out into the snow. And it's made in such a way that the harder it gets pulled into the snow, the deeper it goes. And once again, you're just creating that friction, creating that pull until the sled's kind of stuck. It has to be stuck. <laughs> yeah. Or the dogs just keep Because they just keep pulling. Yeah. And then, so you go to the hot springs and do, they have their like swimming trunks and they get in there or? Yep. So, so the guests are all told beforehand that we're taking you out to this hot springs in the middle of the national forest. Uh, it's built up. It's got changing rooms, this and that. Of course, you would get people who went on this. It was two hours one way, two hours back. So they would go on this two hour tour in the middle of sometimes negative 40 degree weather and you think that they know that they're going to arrive at a hot springs because you've told them this and then you get there and they're like oh I had no idea I didn't bring my towel I didn't bring my swimming trunks this and that and then they expect us to entertain them for the hour that everyone else is in the hot springs and we're just (laughs) tired we want to take care of our dogs we've been running for miles we've been pedaling we're out of breath we're cold but um now we have to sit down with this guest and you know, have a nice conversation about something very. Would you describe it as a nice conversation? Well, you're, you're trying to make it a nice conversation for them. <laughs> for me, it's a waste of my time. It's a waste of my nap time. Um, those moments are very important for people who are p- pulling 12 hour days, very physical every day. And I think I see this a lot in a lot of the different jobs I've done. I think that guests forget sometimes that this is our job. And we do need those moments to just clear our mind, to relax, to take a break, you know, because they're having a good time. They suspect that we're having a good time the whole time, which, you know, most of the time we are. But um, they forget to give us that space sometimes, which can be very important. It reminds me at the bar, I'll be, I'll have like a 10 hour shift and I'm allowed when my boss is there, he'll take over for, you know, 10 minutes to let me eat lunch. And so I'll have to eat my lunch pretty quickly and I'll do it on the other side of the bar, like away from customers and somebody will come up, usually either a customer I talked to already or, you know, one of my friends or a friend of the bar and they'll come up while I'm eating and just start jawing my ear off. And it's like, I uh-huh. can't tell them, listen, buddy, give me five <laughs> fucking minutes of silence or, you know, hey, 
I'm busy with this sandwich and I do not want to talk. So yeah. it's it's like you're sitting there and you don't want to be in this conversation, but you're also, you know, you're not going to be an asshole to him. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that's what I imagine that situation's like. Yeah. And it's caught in this weird dichotomy where they're talking to you because they think that you're cool, you know, and they want to share that moment with you. Um, but also, yes, you've done this six days in a row and all I want to do is nap or eat my food or, you know, even when I was playing with the band, this would really get me. So playing with the band, I'm standing up there, I'm doing a two hour show under these hot lights. My fingers hurt. I don't want to play anymore. I finally make it to the end of the set and people just want to come up and chat with me. Like all I want to do is put my stuff away and have a beer and go home. I'm tired. But um, I feel like it's almost inconsiderate to not have that small chat with them just because I wouldn't be there doing that thing without them. But also, yeah, it's right. my job. And they're so excited to be able to talk with exactly. the person that was just jamming on stage. Yep. So you play fiddle. I do, yes. And which band are you talking about? So um, I've played fiddle a long time and uh, most recently was part of a band back in Long Island called Bangers and Mash. Um, they're a Celtic nice rock band, essentially. Um, yeah. <laughs> they're a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun. They do a lot of tours back on Long Island, but have started branching out sort of up and down the East Coast. And um, you can kind of find them on those jukeboxes that they have in the the bars now, you know, the electronic ones. All the touch tunes? Yeah, we're on there. No shit. Yep. <laughs> awesome. You can hear me in the bar anytime. <laughs> I'm going to. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was um, actually that was part of my seasonal career. Um, sometimes between my big contracted jobs, between the big summer or winter jobs, I'll just pick up a little something here or there during the spring or fall just for a couple months. And um, that was we would play usually three days a week. We'd play Friday, Saturday, Sunday, maybe one to two shows a day. Um, so it was an actual job that I was expected to be at steadily, but it only lasted me. Well, I could only be with them a few months because I picked up a different long-term job uh, out in Colorado. So I had to go to that. And so when you were doing the dog machine, that's when you met Ryan Deininger. Yes. And yep. was he the one that talked to you into coming to catch a can the next season? No. Um, Mary Maley had been a kayak guide up in Southeast Alaska the, I believe the year before she came mushing and I met her at the dog mushing outfit and she saw pretty quickly, everyone saw pretty quickly how much I hated the snow and <laughs> <laughs> that even despite me trying to do a good job, I was just so cold and sometimes miserable. Um, a lot of complaining. <laughs> I did my job well. <laughs> Um, but she said, Hey, you know, I know this place that I think you'd really like. Um, you just, you do kayaks all day. You lead tours. The community is really great. You'll meet a lot of friends up there, this and that. And, um, I think that was really just a few months after I'd started working there. Uh, she set me up with an interview at, um, Southeast Sea Kayaks in Ketchikan and, 
uh, when I got the job, that's where I knew I was going to go afterwards. I had never been there. I'd never thought about going to Alaska. Um, certainly hadn't thought about doing whale watching kayak tours in Alaska, <laughs> but it just seemed like the next cool thing. And I was already on this seasonal role. I was two jobs in. I figured why not keep going? So, um, that's where I ended up next. I came up to Alaska, didn't know anyone except Mary and Ryan who were, who ended up being, I think, I don't want to say prominent, but they knew enough other people that, um, it widened my friend circle very quickly, which made it very easy to slip in, right. slip into the catch can community. Just drop into a ready-made social community. Exactly. And so when you did the kayak job, was that the first time you'd ever been on a kayak? It wasn't the first time I'd ever been on a kayak. Uh, growing up in Long Island, we're surrounded by water. Um, so I'd had little, almost like fishing kayaks, the big wide ones. But it was definitely my first time in one of those sit inside kayaks, the sea kayaks with the skirt and everything. And honestly, I was a little scared when I started because I'd always heard that you could get trapped in those skirts and you might fall over and drown or something. But I learned that that wasn't entirely true. Um, so I picked up a whole new skill, sea kayaking. Um, totally transformed my body. My upper body strength was like through the roof. Um, already that first time. Um, I did, this is something I've breached a few times with people is I think that the seasonal lifestyle has, um, made me more prone to becoming bored at a job. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I feel like. So halfway through that season, I did get bored with the sea kayaking. Um, and thankfully an opportunity was open to me to become a boat captain. So I kind of just transitioned within the company over from being a kayak guide to being a boat captain um, for that company, moving their boats around, moving kayaks around for them. Um, but it was still the same community and I got yet another skill. You know, I got better at driving this 50 foot boat and um, just whole different side of things. And you didn't have to spend as much time with the tourists. Yes. Most importantly, <laughs> <laughs> most importantly, um, my interaction time with tourists went way down. Um, I'm just not a very, this is going to sound weird for someone who's a professional tour guide. I'm not a very social person when it comes to anyone outside a select group of friends. I'm very close with some tight knit people. Um, but then outside of that, I kind of just don't want to be bothered with talking to humans, um, especially about things that I don't care about hearing, which is really what tourism is all about. It's just listening to them talk to about you about things that they want to talk about or indulging questions that you may have answered already, you know, 500 times that season. And you've got to answer it with the same enthusiasm, um, which is just not something that I have a lot of patience for. So. It was nice to just get to see them for about 15 minutes every few hours instead of for two hours every 15 minutes. And how much are you making at the kayak company? The kayak company, I think, was paying me like something like $11 an hour. Um, tips were not great there, so I don't really count those. They didn't help my finances very much. And the housing situation that was provided to us through the kayak company was rather expensive. As, as far as seasonal housing goes, um, I was splitting a room with another kayak guide and we were both paying, 
I think close to $300 each a month. Um, so, you know, considering that my first job was free housing and food included, my second job was $100 housing with two meals included, and this one was no meals and a $300 housing. For me, that was uh, sort, of, sort of a loss financially, but um, I still was able to save quite a bit. And you are one of the seasonals that I think handles their financial planning better than most. What at that time and was sort of your goal setting routine or your, did you have like a system of, I need these numbers or how did, how did you do it? So I've never really planned out my finances, um, explicitly. I've never said, okay, I'm going to put this much away every week or something like that. Generally what I try to do is when I'm working a job where I'm making tips, I'll try and just put all of my paychecks straight into the savings and not touch them. And I try to just live off my tips. So if my tips are very low, I'll just be very, you know, stay at home, try not to do a lot. And if I'm rolling high, then, you know, I'm having a good week. Um, and that has worked for me in the past. Most jobs I've been able to put away um, a decent chunk of, ch- well, okay. For, for me, it's a decent chunk of change. Generally every season I can save $6,000 saved, not made, just saved which for me is nice. It's allowed me to, you know, have emergency funds when I need them. It's allowed me to travel. It's allowed me to buy vehicles. But that, like I said, I I don't really have um, a financial plan, I guess. I just kind of try to live within my means considering my tips to be my means instead of my paycheck. And so you did the kayaking and then you got onto the Seaspree, the boat that you drove. Mm -hmm. And what what did you do the next season? How'd you get there? So I had been dog mushing and then I went kayaking and then I told you how much I hate the snow. Um, so I vowed to myself that I was going to skip winter. I was not going to do it. I was going to do the thing that you suggested earlier and find some kind of tropical job and do that through the winter. Um, so I figured the place that a lot of people talked about in Alaska where I hadn't been was Hawaii. And I had a friend who was visiting family down in Hawaii around Thanksgiving. So it just seemed like the perfect opportunity. I hooked up with her and we just did a little girl's vacation for about a month. And during that month, I sought out jobs. Um, I did not use the internet as much this time. I, I was actually browsing Craigslist and looking for ranching opportunities or any type of boating opportunity which were the two things that I knew I was skilled at that I thought I could probably find in Hawaii. And I did find some ranching opportunities um, and went with her to go check out the operations and just see. It's kind of slim pickings in Hawaii. They're not very good about, I don't consider it a seasonal friendly state. They don't really want seasonals. They don't do things to make seasonal life easier. So almost no place provides housing. They expect you to already live in Hawaii and have housing. Um, Things like getting a P.O. box are ridiculously hard where other states will kind of fudge it for you because they're used to a seasonal community. There is just, you know, by the book, which makes it very difficult. Um, So anyway, I found these two ranches and one of them, when I arrived, was not so much a ranch as it was an old lady with several horses in her backyard. Um, She was a very interesting person. Um, 
she had this porch outside her house. I and me and the my friends still laugh about this all the time. There's this porch outside that was just, I kid you not, covered in spiders and spider webs. And I mean like a good three feet from the ceiling down was thick with spider webs and multicolored, quite large spiders. And she wanted me to walk through this porch to enter her house so she could interview me or whatever. And she was laughing her head off that I was ducking from the spiders. <laughs> and she was making fun of me for just, you know, well, I didn't end up working there. It was, it was a mess. <laughs> um, but I did end up at this other ranch that was an established, had at one time been an established cattle ranch and um, horse breeding and training establishment. Um, and... Uh, I was hired on as a wrangler and a tour guide. So I was supposed to help with, you know, the care and keeping of the horses, the care of the property, and I was supposed to take out tours, which is just what I had done the first time I was ever a seasonal on the dude ranch down in Durango. Um, except I was, I was the only wrangler that they hired. And I don't know how I didn't know that was going to happen. I think I was just so happy that I finally found a place that was going to get me housing and a job that I just sort of overlooked the fact that I was the only one. So it was me and this one older fellow who wasn't really a wrangler. He was just a farmhand. Um, and at first the situation seemed good and I was happy to go through it with the winter. And then very quickly I sort of realized that, um, they had, I feel like they had some sort of bias against me because I wasn't from Hawaii. I think they realized that once I started working there. And um, things just went south very quickly. In what ways? It was really in the manner that they, they treated me. Um, they would just talk down to me constantly. And I, I had been working with horses for a very long time. And I understand that everyone has a different way of doing, you know, just like with anything, any job. Everyone has their own way of doing it. And when you work somewhere, it's your job to do it their way, which is how I see it. That's fine. Um, but I would do something my way that they hadn't otherwise told me not to do and they would just tear into me about it really um it was like with my level of of horse experience I compare it to having like a formula one mechanic hiring him on and then asking him to just shine bumpers all day and then getting really mad at him if he didn't shine it correctly um, so I felt extremely frustrated I felt like I couldn't use all of the skills that I'd earned for you know 10 plus years of my life um I think the final straw was one day we were out she was teaching me how she wanted me to take tours and um I found out that she just expected me to never basically never ride the horses for fun and during tours to only ever walk which was just removing any sense of uh emotional relief you know, those are the things you do to blow off some steam. You know, you just run here or there or you just go out for a ride by yourself. It's the reasons you're there. It's the reason I'm there. Yeah. Um, so on top of being uncomfortable with all the other prejudices that I felt there were, um, that was sort of just the final straw for me. And I decided, I believe it was that day I decided that I was just going to leave, <laughs> leave Hawaii. Um, I probably could have stayed. I probably could have. There was actually another seasonal in the area who I had sort of a secondary connection to. Um, 
And I probably could have stayed with her and managed to find some other seasonal work there. But um, at the time, with all my emotions running crazy, I just bought a plane ticket and um, knew that I could find something back on the mainland that would be more what I was used to. And so the next season, you came back to Ketchikan. Yes. So I finished out that winter. I went back to the Dog Mushroom Ranch and I finished out that winter there. And then um, the next season, I did come back to Ketchikan, but I was burned out on tourism. But I still want to work seasonally and be a part of that seasonal community, enjoy all of the benefits of being uh, a seasonal worker. Um, and something that had caught my eye and caught my attention the year before was the commercial fishing aspect of the town. Um, I just... I love doing manual labor and especially manual labor that's really, really doing something for someone, um, you know, so more so than tourism, maybe like farm work or fishing or, you know, and I'd always seen the boats going up and down the Tongass Narrows. I just thought they were so cool. I'd gotten a chance to go out on one the year before my boss at the time had, um, set me up with one of the boats to go on one outing and, um, it, it caught my attention and w that captain um, reached out to me over the winter and asked if I would come out that summer and do a season with them. So I did. I ended up on the R&R, &R, uh, a saner out of Thomas Basin in Ketchikan. And um, that was a completely different experience. <laughs> well, you're out of tourism, right? I was out of tourism. Yeah. Um, I spent most of my day not having to answer silly questions and I didn't make any tips. <laughs> Nobody tips you. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, it was a different side of seasonal work that I hadn't seen before without the guest aspect. You still have that sense of community with, you know, your boatmates and other people in your line of work. Um, uh, I had a small sense of community with my friends back in Ketchikan who I'd met the year before, but it was more of um, an in and out. I happen to be here. Who's free? Is anyone available to say hi to me sort of deal? Uh, wasn't as entrenched in the Ketchikan community. What were you making on the, on the fishing boat? Because uh. <laughs> it can be, I know that it can be lucrative, but you can also have trips yes. where you don't make anything. And yeah. actually sometimes you owe the captain. Yes. Yeah. Um, so with fishing boats, um, you get a percentage assigned to you based on how long you've been there and just, you know, what the captain's used to doing. And so for me, um, I had like a 7% crew share, I believe. You're not really supposed to talk about fishing money. Um, <laughs> um, and so that is assigned to you based on the boat's profits or that's given to you based on the boat's profits after they subtract the price of they spent on gasoline and the price they spent on food. And so if you have a really incredibly bad fishing year um, and you know, the price of gas and the price of food ends up being ends up deducting a negative number, you could end up owing the boat. Um, so you finish an entire fishing season and you owe the boat, you know, 25 bucks or something, but you didn't make any money. Um, generally there are enough fish in the ocean that 
you can make anywhere between, I'd say, 20000 And back in the old days, they said you could take home sixty to $80,000 for three months of, approximately three months of um, hard labor. Uh, but that varies on so many, so many factors, you know, just, it's really hard to say what that number would be for anyone who's going into it. You were a crime beat reporter back in New York, mm-hmm. and now you are the king dick at a horse ranch <laughs> in Colorado. You've, your list, your resume is one of the more varied longer ones in the community. If somebody were to come up and ask you, or if you heard about a friend of a friend that was sort of, you know, looking into seasonal life, um, but was a little hesitant because, you know, it is a risk. What, what was it's something that you would tell them? I've actually had this conversation with a lot of my friends back home. Um, I have a lot of friends who actually journalism friends who are working at papers or working in law offices right now and have decided that they are miserable where they are, um, just because, you know, it, maybe it wasn't exactly the right fit for them or they're just done with the same thing every day, nine to five. Um, and they look at me and I I do post things on Instagram just because I want to share what's out here with people. I think it's a really cool thing that if you can't do, you can at least see exists. So they're looking at my Instagram and they ask me, you know, how do I get into that? That looks so cool. And they'll always say, they'll say, I'm ready. What do I do? And they're never ready. Um, Because I'll start to explain to them. I'm like, you just... I can hook, you know, I can hook you up with a job. I know people who work places and I know people who are looking for employees. You just have the, have the impetus to get up and go. And that's always what gets them. Leaving their comfort zone. Leaving the comfort zone is always where they stop. They'll come up with a million excuses. They say they, you know, their finances aren't in order. I had less than a thousand dollars in my savings when I went to that ranch in Durango. I didn't even, I don't even think I thought about money. I was just like, I needed to go. And the thing that I've always said is so great about seasonal work, especially if you can find a job that's going to give you housing and food. Like I said, my first job, I, I didn't pay for anything. I didn't pay for anything. So if you can get there, you can do it. You just have to have enough cash. You just have to have enough, you know, self-push to, to get there. And usually it's set. You work, you show up, you have fun. You do your job the best you can, and um, it's going to work out for you. But a lot of people just can't get over the fear to just get there. That's At a certain point, there's only so much I can do. I can set up everything for you. Your friends can set up everything for you. They can lay out exactly how it can be done. And if you aren't willing to get up and get there, then I can't help you. Then you're going to stay in that miserable yep. life. Yep. You are, you're in control of your own happiness. You've just got to decide to make yourself happy. <laughs> I think that is perfectly worded. And we got to get you on a plane. Yeah, I got to get out of here. Oh, I'm so sad. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks for talking to me. Pleasure, Joey. Always is. 
That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Yeah.